Welcome to the With Faith in Mind podcast. I'm John Terrell, today's host, and I also serve as the executive director of Upper House. Today, we explore the topic of Christian education, and we're going to take a look uh, at Christian education from a bird's eye view. And we have someone um, who will be terrific to help us understand the broad sweep of Christian education and some of the changes that are taking place. Uh, It's part of a series uh, that we're um, featuring on Christian education at the crossroads. In this episode, we welcome to the show, Dr. Eugene Habecker. Gene, welcome uh, to the Faith in Mind podcast. Thanks, John. It's a joy to be here with you. Well, it is great to to have you with us. Um, Thank you for carving out time today. Um, Let me tell our listeners a little bit about Dr. Habecker. Uh, He served as president of Taylor University from 2005 to 2016. Prior to Taylor, Gene served uh, in presidencies at the American Bible Society and Huntington University. He's a graduate from Taylor University. Uh, He has a master's degree from Wall State University and a PhD from the University of Michigan. He's also a graduate of Temple University's School of Law and the the Institutional Educational Management Program at Harvard University. He's an author, um, a number of books, uh, lots of articles. He's edited a number of books, but I have in front of me a terrific book um, that maybe might be his last book. I don't know if you've written one since. Um, This is The Softer Side of Leadership. And- um, That is the last book. That's the last book. This is maybe five years old, uh, but a terrific book on leadership. And we'll put all the details about this book uh, in the show notes, Um, but I really uh, would recommend it to our listeners. Um, A fun fact about Gene, uh, and maybe this number has gone up, uh, he's traveled to, uh, traveled in more than 90 countries. um, And that that bio is- Over 100 now. Over 100, so- It's over 100. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, We'll have to start asking you, what countries haven't you uh, traveled to? (laughs) (laughs) About 50. Okay. No, there's a lot. There's a lot more. Yeah. a lot more to see. Watching the Olympic processional is a different kind of experience for you than, than for most of us. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, we could have a whole podcast on that. Uh, uh, Gene is married to Mary Lou, and we could have had Mary Lou on the show. In fact, this morning I was thinking, boy, I should have invited Mary Lou to join us. She's she's an amazing woman uh, in her own right, um, and has. Um, led right alongside Gene in higher education and, and uh, at the American Bible Society as well. Um, they have uh, t- together three children and um, seven grandchildren, and they make their home in Florida part of the year and then Coldwater, Michigan part of the year. That's correct. Okay. Right now we're enjoying Florida. And right now, uh, enjoying Florida. So um, I don't know. We've got a warm day here in Madison, Wisconsin, so I'm not, I'm not feeling as... Uh, um, as internally uh, conflicted as I might be otherwise, G. <laughs> well, good. Well, we're going to have a fun conversation today. Um, but Gene, you know, you've had so many different roles um, and you've been in this work for a long time. Um, but I want to ask you, how, how did your calling to Christian education begin? I, I started as an undergraduate student at Taylor University, and it absolutely transformed my life, but it was also foundational. And I would say up until that point, I probably hadn't given a lot of thought uh, to Christian 
education or Christian higher education in particular, uh, I, I selected Taylor for a very simple reason. It was one that my parents had heard about and one that they felt comfortable for me to attend. And so I didn't look at 20 other schools or 10 other schools uh, where I was in my own faith journey at that particular point. My faith was still pretty much in my head, not in my heart. Right. And I knew that if I had yeah. gone to another type of university, I might not be in my best interest. And so uh, God uses a lot of ways to direct uh, people to the places where he uh, wants them to be. And that was enough to get me to Taylor. And then when I got there, obviously, as I said, it was foundational and transformational in my own life. And I've been a fan of it ever since. So how does a, a kid from Eastern Pennsylvania, where, where you, you grew up in Eastern Hershey, Pennsylvania was my okay. hometown. Yeah. So how, do you, how, does a, how does a kid from Hershey, Pennsylvania get to... Um, I grew up, you know, an hour north of um, Taylor, um, and it is it is um, kind of the cornfields of Indiana. Um, how, how do you, I mean? Clearly, there's a, a great reputation there, but how did your how did your family have um, a connection to Taylor? Actually, it was through athletics. Um, in our Sunday school at our church, uh, we used to get a, a Scripture Press magazine, a little paper called Power for Living. Uh, and it was, we got it every, every week we were at church and it told stories. And this focused on uh, a couple of coaches at Taylor University at that point by the name of Don Odell and Bob Davenport. Uh, one was the basketball coach. The other was the football coach. And their stories were featured in, in Power for Living. And that's how my parents first heard about the university. And then, of course, they were talking with a really close family friend whose son had just transferred to Taylor University and was having a good experience. And that, all right, that's good enough. That's good enough. Uh, that's good enough for them. And so they were open to my pursuing it. At, at that point, there were not a lot of what I would call really solid Christian higher education options. Uh, a lot of the schools were young or struggling, trying to find their way forward. Christian higher education, I think, left uh, a lot of room to be desired in terms of its own growth and development. Uh, my folks were familiar with the Bible college movement uh, in Eastern Pennsylvania. There was something known as Philadelphia College of the Bible. And my uncle was a professor at Moody Bible Institute okay. in Chicago. So I think yeah. my parents were more familiar with that part of, of, of Christian higher ed than the whole Christian liberal arts movement. Neither my mother nor my father uh, attended college of any type. And my father, in fact, never, never even completed high school. So, so I was kind of a first generation newbie, didn't know a whole lot about, uh, but the Lord uh, superintended and guided and uh, ended up at Taylor and it was a gift. Yeah. The sports, uh, a lot of things that are part of your response there, but um, the reach of Christian colleges and universities with athletics is significant. I, as a kid, I was, um, you know, I attended Taylor basketball camp, um, and oh, yeah. and and that had a, quite a regional draw, maybe even beyond regional draw. Um, and so it's been there for over fifty years. Yeah, 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 and I won't forget that experience. So, so a big uh, uh, that that helps to put the pieces together. That makes a lot of sense, and and why you would find yourself um, drawn to Taylor. Um, I I want to um, give our listeners a sense of the diverse experiences you've had leading 
uh, Christian institutions. And I want to do a little bit of free association here because um, I think it will open up a window to the breadth of um, Christian education institutions and the ways that they serve. And I'm going to list, um, I, prob- I don't know if I'm touching on everything, but the Christian colleges and Christian nonprofits uh, that you've served. And I just want you to to quickly name a couple of strengths, a strength or two from each of these institutions. Um, and I, I know some of these you served a number of years ago, but as you think back at your time there or just think about the distinctives of these institutions, I would love for, um, for our listeners to have a chance to, to hear you reflect uh, over several decades, um, I think five decades of service, um, looking back at these, these institutions. So let me start uh, chronologically, Huntington University, which is also in Indiana. Yeah, it was a uh, United Brethren institution, a strong church tie, uh, denominationally affiliated. And uh, I learned a little bit there. Uh, I mean, I learned a lot of things there. I was uh, served as president there for 10 years and two years as executive vice president prior to that. And I, I learned about there the strong connection uh, that higher education, Christian higher education in particular, ought to have to the, to the church. Uh, that was uh, that was new to me, and it was a very vibrant and very strong connection, uh, and and very helpful. Uh, the, the the mystery to me is why the church, by and large, doesn't support Christian higher education uh, more strongly. Uh, certainly, that denomination could have and should have supported it uh, more strongly in terms of its financial uh, involvement. It did a good job of sending students our way, which uh, certainly was helpful. Uh, but that that's kind of where I cut my teeth uh, in presidential leadership, something I then had the joy of uh, experiencing for 35 consecutive years, uh, where I had the joy of serving in president CEO roles. Yeah. And I realize I don't have- I don't have these in chronological order, but that's really, really helpful. And the, the strong denominational tie or the denominational tie and, and some of the challenges around the strengths and weaknesses of that tie and where it was being well leveraged and not as well leveraged is, is insightful. Um, George Fox University. That was a fringe university, a really a strong uh, Anabaptist, uh, very strong in the peace movement, uh, Herbert Hoover. A former U.S. president uh, uh, was known to have attended the academy, which was a precursor to uh, George Fox University. That was my first C-suite type uh, uh, of appointment. I was uh, uh, dean of students there uh, for four years and was assistant professor in the uh, classroom in the political science department. Uh, that's where I learned, among other things, I was I was 28 when I was named dean of students there. Uh, didn't know what I was doing, but fortunately, I, I knew enough about what I was doing to uh, qualify uh, for the job. But that one of the things of the George Fox experience was the way more senior leaders invested in me as a young leader, and the way that helped grow me and shape me and form me, and that would Im- impact me uh, for the rest of my life. I still know those names, uh, still remember the conversations, and uh, several of them I refer to in the book. Yeah, well, Eastern University, this may have been your first assignment. Is that correct? 
That was my first job out of grad school. Okay. Uh, I was I had been offered a position at Wheaton uh, College as associate dean and a position at Eastern uh, as assistant dean. And all my friends said, you've got to go to we uh, have to go to Wheaton because that's that's the name. Uh, but I was I was on a break from my law school uh, uh education at that point from Indiana University, Bloomington, which is where I had started my first year of law school. And I, I was taking some courses in the higher ed department at Indiana University at that point, uh, preparing to go to Eastern. And I said, well, before I made the decision to go to Eastern, I said, if you were, if you had to select the kind of school that ought to be your first job, what would you recommend? He'd say, he said, I, I would recommend a young, struggling liberal arts college, they're still trying to figure out everything, or a community college. He said, you're going to have the opportunity to get involved in almost everything, whereas in a more stable, more mature institution, which Wheaton certainly was at that point, uh, you're going to get stuck on a shelf and, and most likely have a narrow, a narrower range of responsibilities. That was a pretty prophetic statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Wheaton wanted me to be in that role 11 months of the year. I didn't uh, have the opportunity to, you know, would, would not have the opportunity to continue my legal education if I had made the Wheaton choice. Uh, and so we made the decision to say no to Wheaton and go to Eastern, where I could finish my law degree while I was there at Temple University. And while I was there in four years, I was assistant dean of students, director of financial aid, cross country coach, assistant uh, athletic director, and an instructor okay. in phys ed. I mean, as well as my wife and I were both RDs, hall directors. <laughs> so the professor was right. And I think it jump started my career, gave me a lot of early experiences. It was a Baptist university, so I, uh, an American Baptist uh, university. So I had the chance to, to get that kind of you know, uh, denominational experience, which I can then later juxtaposition, you know, with the friends position at George Fox, et cetera. So, so Eastern, again, our two sons were born there. Uh, Mary Lou was a school teacher in the Ballard-Kinwood uh, School District, which was a really superb one. It was, we were part of a great church called the Church of the Savior. It was really formative in many ways in, in helping us uh, get our, our family started and a career started. Uh, not knowing at, at that point where where God was going to take us or what we would be doing. Yeah, and we're it's just fascinating and you're kind of the stops you've had along the way. Um, it, it's interesting. I didn't know you started at Indiana University because the, the law school, uh, I was a member of the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity, which literally um, the law school library stared down our parking lot and practically in our windows. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Yes, yes. So, yes. Who knows? Uh, who knew? Um, well, you were you were there just a couple of years ahead of ahead of me, um, but um, a couple of years. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's let's move to Taylor University. Taylor University. Uh, I'm juxtapositioning when I went there as a student. As compared to when Mary Lou and I returned right. as a, in the presidency, right. uh, a much more mature uh, institution, non-denominational. Uh, of course, the American Bible Society prepared uh, us for that because at ABS we worked with the Roman Catholic Church, mm -hmm. uh, 
the multiple iterations of the Orthodox Church, mm -hmm. the historic mainline Protestant, and the evangelical churches. So that was a very broad, a much broader uh, focus in terms of Christendom than any of the Christian liberal arts colleges that I served. But again, Taylor was non-denominational, which was not a problem uh, because, uh, again, working at ABS with all those Christian traditions, uh, I, I was prepared and felt comfortable uh, in that environment. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Taylor was 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 a worthy capstone, I think, to all of our uh, other administrative leadership roles, uh, because the great joy is is our marriage coach would encourage us at Taylor to profess the presidency together, mm -hmm. husband and wife. And so Mary Lou and I had a blast. And in fact, I was talking with uh, a colleague uh, just recently, uh, uh, you know, from a, a major foundation on the West Coast. And she was saying, man, your, your name keeps coming up when I have these conversations. But she said, Mary Lou's name keeps coming up more. Mm. <laughs> and, because, and that was a joy because we, we did it together and, and uh, we hadn't, we hadn't done that, uh, you know, to the extent that we did it at Taylor. So Taylor was a fitting capstone uh, for our time together. And of course, our mutual friend, Michael English, or Michael making Michael Lindsay is doing a fabulous job there now in the presidency. Yeah, yeah. And and um, I want to give you an opportunity to say anything additional you'd like to mention about the American Bible Society. I think sometimes people don't think about the American Bible Society as an, as an, uh, an, an, an entity focused on education, but it really is focused on Christian education through Bible literacy. Yeah. Bible ABS is, yeah, it, it, ABS is an interesting, is an interesting uh, uh, place. Uh, it, was, it was something I did not grow up as a kid knowing about or hearing about it. In fact, I was, uh, as a, I was uh, doing a, a stint as a visiting scholar at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, when I was called. Uh, about the opportunity at ABS, and I was asked if I wanted to explore it further, and they said, I said, no. Uh, I, I, I had my life all planned out. It was going to be a career in Christian higher education. Mm -hmm. But then I got this below-the-belt kind of question uh, from the uh, member of the search committee, uh, and it was kind of like, would you at least be willing to pray about it? And how do you say no to that if you are a person who follows uh, Christ or we're called to be image bearers, you know, of God in, in our lives? And so the more we prayed about it, the more God used a variety of circumstances and situations to go into that, into that very strategic mission and ministry in the heart of New York City. And again, I grew up on a farm. I was a farm kid, you know, and the schools that you've named are not, except for Temple University, which is in North urban Philadelphia, the rest of those schools are not known for their commitment to, you know, for their engagement with, mm -hmm. with the urban core, uh, you know, like New York City, one of the mega cities in the world. And so that in itself was an educational experience. And then ABS was connected with a hundred, we had offices and colleagues in 150 plus countries around the world. Mm. And I got to be involved in leadership, not only at ABS, but globally, chaired a, a you know, the, the overall, overall arching board uh, of the United Bible Societies. And, and that's really where God gave me a whole different education, gave us a whole different education with regard to diversity and the beauty of his church 
and 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 the world that that he created. Yeah. And and as you as you stated, uh, ABS has very always been involved in in education in some way, shape, or form. That whether it's literacy, major literacy program, whether it's putting a spoken language into a printed form in terms of Bible translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the time we worked at ABS, uh, we selected the best uh, Old Testament student of uh, hundreds of schools around the United States and the best New Testament student uh, seminaries and undergrad and gave them a Nestle Allen New Testament, or we gave them a Biblical Hebraic, a Stugartensia, which is a pretty massive, you know, uh, Hebrew uh, uh, study uh, study book. I mean, so it's it's uh, it's a uh, ABS was involved, and it introduced us to people groups and cultures and geographies that were substantially new to both uh, Mary Lou and me. And again, it was not a it's, it was an education that there's no degree after it, but it, it would be one of the major learning experiences of my life. I had the, the opportunity, for example, to spend time with. Uh, uh, you know, His Holiness Pope John Paul II. I spent a good time with Alexei, uh, you know, the uh, the primate, uh, a patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. once in New York and once in Moscow, and various other uh, 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 patriarchs of uh, various uh, Orthodox mm-hmm. communions, Shenouda in in uh, Cairo, and uh, yeah, it was just it was a whole yeah. different. A whole different experience. Well, it sounds like from it, anything it I had known uh, in higher education. Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me. I'd like to get your definition. Fifteen seconds. Um, how would you describe Christian education? What is Christian education? Where image bearers of God reflect in the development of their minds and hearts. Hearts, uh, the attributes and the gifts that God has uh, given to each of those individuals, but in a way to grow uh, intellectually and socially and spiritually as well, grounded in God's Word. Okay, that's that very helpful definition. Um, reflecting back on your experiences, um, what are some of the main ways? Um, that you have seen people um, move into a deeper sense of of their image bearing capacity. So, what are what are the channels, the the delivery mechanisms? Uh, and again, kind of a, a brief response here that that you have come to understand as really important and essential for helping people develop as um, as people made in the image of God. Well, let, let me mention two, uh, particularly uh, strong mentorship mm-hmm. in terms of a faculty-student relationship. Strong mentorship in the student-faculty relationship in the context, secondly, of a vibrant, dynamic community. Okay. So it's it's the it's it's the mentorship. Of faculty and and with students in the context of a of a supportive community that shares similar values 
and committed to similar objectives. Great. Very helpful. So as an administrator, I'm going to press you here, and this is really around metrics or or impact. How do you know if your institution's being successful? In your roles, um, how, how did you discern, how did your teams discern if you were actually doing a good job of what you were setting out to do? Well, there are a couple of ways I can answer that. Uh, the first way I, I'm, I'm going to answer is is by uh, referencing something that uh, all higher education has to wrestle with, and that's the accreditation process. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, one of the things that accreditation does is to address the question, are you really doing, in fact, what you say you're doing? And so, for example, at the University of Wisconsin, that's accredited by the Higher Learning Commission based in Chicago. I served as a consultant evaluator for the Higher Learning Commission for 10 years. Uh, And that's one of the things that a team would do when it goes to visit a university in response to a self-study is to verify and validate that what you say you are doing is what you're actually doing. Now, that's interesting because the evaluators themselves are not necessarily people of faith. These are people who are colleagues who share commitments to quality and excellence in higher ed. And so those are the people that are looking through all of your documents. So what what basically, you know, one, one of the things, just a quick little aside here, one of the things that I don't think we reference enough in the Christian community is the importance of doing good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or doing good works. You know, Jesus said, uh, let your light shine before people, they may see your good works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that'll bring glory to your father. Or Paul in his writings to, to the Galatian church said, as you therefore have opportunity, do good to everyone. You know, so doing good, especially, well, finish the verse, do good to everyone, especially those that are the household of faith. So the whole idea of doing good can be observable by people outside of the faith. And that's what the accreditation process is. So that, that's the first thing. How, how would we know we're, we're, we're achieving what we're trying to achieve? And the accreditation process is, is one. The audit process, having a CPA, an outside CPA firm, come in and evaluate you financially. Are you managing well? Are your business processes good? That's another way. But of course, the practical way that you 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 uh, address that question is is look at the lives of your alumni. What are their commitments? What are they involved in? And then uh, two other pieces of the practical uh, mode uh, way of of checking is are are people enrolling, you know, uh, in 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 significant numbers at your institution, and are people supporting it financially? Yeah, I mean that's one of the ways you, yeah. you you can measure relevance to 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 what you're doing is is are are people coming, staying, and graduating from your institution, and is there financial support to help to help pay the uh, you know the cost of what it takes to to to, to offer Christian higher education. Yeah, so I, those are those are some yeah, of the that, that's, that I would do. So helpful, and I know you think a lot about this. What about you mentioned a dynamic community and the the mentoring relationship between students and faculty. Yeah. What are ways that yeah. institutions can um, ensure that that dynamics like that 
are are in place and are effective. How did you do it? How did you measure the dynamism of your campus? And how did you measure um, the strength and quality of mentoring relationships? Well, Taylor Taylor did it in, in, in many ways, but one of the most unique ways was through its chapel experience. Taylor, unlike almost any other Christian institution, does not take attendance at chapel. Mm-hmm. It says to students, "This is expected, but." We're not going to stand over you and have people take attendance or use credit, you know, little chapel cards or whatever through a you know, scan or whatever. And, and in fact, I would tell parents, if your son or daughter is not serious about growing in their Christian faith, this is probably the wrong institution for mm-hmm. you. And the joy that we had is chapel at Taylor is packed three times a week. People are there because they want to be. So I think. One of the things that 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 was a big measurement for us was the chapel experience. We invested a lot into that experience, that gathering together as community to worship, to learn together. You think about the platform of, you know, what university brings, Christian or otherwise, brings together 1,500 plus students three times a week for a common shared learning experience. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that in, in, in most of the time included worship. I mean, that is a rare, a rare, a, a rare experience right. where students choose to go there, not have to go, not, not going to get in trouble if they don't, but choose to go because they want to be that kind of person. So that was a huge part of the Taylor community. And of course, that supplemented, uh, you know, most of our Taylor students chose intentionally to live in residence halls for all four years or in some kind of residential experience. That was viewed as a another part of the learning environment. A lot of other colleges have picked up on that and you know, big universities like University of Wisconsin, Michigan State, Michigan State pioneered, not pioneered, but was a leader in terms of, of staffing educationally, you know, res- the residence hall experience. Um, and I, I think uh, the namesakes on your uh, foundation at Upper House, you know, we're very much involved in that at Michigan State, if I remember my conversations yeah. correctly. And so a lot of universities do that. But when you have that educational mix, both within the classroom and without the cl- outside of the classroom, so that all, all of those units together, you know, you're seeking to mentor and develop young people, you know, uh, in and what does it mean to, to model and to mirror, it'd be a better word, to mirror the, you know, God's image in everything that you do. That's a pretty powerful combination. And then, you know, the, the chapel experience kind of ties it all together. So whether it's the, on the athletic field or whether it's in a residence hall or whether it's, in the, whether it's in clubs or whether it's in the classroom or whether it's in chapel, there is a consistent message being shared, you know, about what it means uh, to be a faithful image bearer and letting your life mirror the kinds of things that Jesus taught in the Gospels, the kind of things we learn in the Scripture. Yeah. You know, at the same time, you're developing yeah. that mind and that whole cognitive side of you as well. That's yeah. a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, it really is. There's a, a coherence uh, and, and 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 attention to um, the affections, the kind of integration. Yeah, the, the, the an integration. Right, right, right. Um, I, there's so much I, I could press into here. Um, 
let me ask one more question about this this experience of of chapel because I think that's interesting and I know that's a really significant thing at Taylor. Is 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 strong chapel attendance a leading indicator of uh, spiritual well being or a lagging indicator? I, I'm, I'm, to me, it'd be a lead. Be I'd a, want it to be a leading indicator. Okay, and, yeah. and and talk about why, and, and maybe our listeners aren't familiar with those terms, but um, is it, it, talk about how you understand? Because I again, what's one of the things that's so interesting talking about you is your attention to um, management discipline, um, but in a way that um, is attentive to the soft side of leadership as well. And you know, it's the title of your book. And so you're not someone who just yeah. drives at metrics without thinking about, um, you know, the softer dimensions of leadership and organizational health and so forth. But when you think about leading and lagging indicators as an administrator uh, in institutions of higher Christian learning, how do you think about um, th- those two ways to to capture capture uh, performance? All right, let me let me distinguish between transactional exchanges versus transformational changes. You can get a transaction, a, a transactional experience in, in higher education, even in Christian higher education in many different formats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can go online, many different modalities. You, you can go online, take whatever classes you're in and you're out, I've teaching programs. You know, you know, you don't have time to really develop the long, and 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 a lot of people choose to do that, right. which is okay. That's not that's not negative, but that doesn't measure the kind of thing where I I I am really seeking. I'm really seeking to grow my Christ, my Christian faith in a devotional, intellectual, integrated in, in, in an integrated way. When you're on a college campus where you have a thousand different opportunities to engage in something, you know, going to the union, going to, you know, a club, playing in sports, when you deliberately and intentionally say, I, I, will, I will choose to worship as a priority, and I will choose to do that of my own volition, right. it's not mandatory, you don't get in trouble. I think that that evokes a higher level of openness, I would say, to spiritual growth and spiritual learning uh, that that doesn't happen if, if I really don't want to be there. And I'm only there because I have to be and somebody's taking attendance. Yeah. So so for me, it's, it's probably the first thing I would point to, you know, in terms of what differentiates a place like Taylor from almost every other Christian uh, college in the country. Yeah. Gene, I'm going to borrow some language from Peter Drucker. Um, I know you're familiar with yeah. Peter Drucker. Um, as a president of several um, Christian colleges and uh, major um, Christian nonprofit organization, um, who's your primary customer? Let's think. Of, let's let me ask this in the context of Christian higher education. Um, that'll make the, the response, I think, a little cleaner. Um, who's your no, prim- no question. The, prime, the, the customer, the student, and their families. That that is why we're there. In fact, when I when I went when I came to Taylor, I would say to our faculty, "I love faculty. Faculty are great for what we're trying to accomplish. We can't do it without, you know, uh, uh, without 
the, the, the multiple ways in which you invest in our in our community and in the lives of our students. But students and their family, that, that's what we're focused on. That's why we're here, to serve and educate those students. If, if, if we make something else our priority, like the community, which is important, uh, you know, uh, the geography where we live, what the board wants, what the staff wants, what the alumni are about, uh, what the church wants. Not that um, all of these are important. Hear me on this. All of these, all of these are important uh, 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 priorities. But if we miss, if we, if we, if we don't communicate to students that you are, you are why we're here, and and to, and their families, you know, don't get that. We're we're going to miss the mark, and and we're going to lose, you know, the very battle we're trying to win. So. Yes, I, absolutely. I think I, uh, I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there are a lot of really important um, additional stakeholders that have strong voice um, and, um, and have competing interests in some ways. Maybe they're complementary interests, but certainly some competing interests. What did you learn about managing um, multiple stakeholders? And in a college, Christian college setting, um, what groups constitute some of the really important secondary customers that you had to devote a lot of time paying attention to? Well, I've, I've mentioned some of those uh, just a minute ago. I, I usually talked about seven or eight every every time I had a chance of competing people that want something different. I mean, students would be one group. Students didn't always want what their parents mm-hmm. wanted. Parents didn't always want what the alumni wanted. Alumni didn't always want what the donors wanted. The donors didn't always want what the church wanted. The, the church didn't always want what the faculty wanted. The faculty didn't always want what the staff wanted. Um, and then, then of course, you have the communities, the geographies where we where we live and work. They always want they they don't always want what everyone else wants. And so, I, I think your your question is how do you balance? Uh, how how do you balance? How do you pull all of those those different dis, uh, disparate groups? together uh well well can you even balance i guess part of my question gene would be can you actually um accomplish the balancing act or or is a a a different is a a, there's a better metaphor of what you're actually doing uh in yeah balance is probably not the right right word i i think i think there are a couple of approaches though i i I would I, i would say we need to take in 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 terms of that and and one is we have to be crystal clear in our identity and who we are. We can't, a, a Christian college can't be all things to all people. Uh, you know, you're gonna, you know, just like Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. You know, uh, some people are gonna like it and the other are gonna be opposite. We have to be who we are and we can't be embarrassed or apologetic for who we are. And and we, it's, it is what it is, you know, to use a cliche. I mean, it's, uh, and, and let's let's promote that, but do it, in a, a sense of not just that's who we are. No, do it with love and grace and 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 charity. You know, again, this is where the image bearer of who God calls us to be, made in His image, you know, comes into play here. I mean, I, I as a I don't have the I don't have the opportunity to to you know to say well because I'm a university president I can ignore. You know, uh, half of the teachings of, of what I think Jesus is teaching. I've got to practice those, and 
regardless of the position that I hold and the role that I serve. And so even there, I mean, uh, people catch that. And I, 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 Mary Lou would say, if she were uh, on this with us, she would emphasize, and I, I totally agree, is the importance of relationship development mm-hmm. and listening. And interestingly, active listening is more than just waiting to get your chance to speak. You know, really, really, we don't do a very good job in our culture, in our communities of listening to one another. Uh, and, and so I think, I think those are the kinds of things. And so, you know, when, when you can't, I'm sorry, the answer to that is no. And I know you're not going to be happy with that, but this is the direction we're going to go. Uh, leadership is not about popularity. Mm. If, if you, if you, you know, well, I want you to like me for my decision. We all will have the desire to be liked, but, but faithfulness is a better indicator. Mm-hmm. Faith, faithfulness to the mission and to what uh, I think we're called to do uh, in those leadership roles that the Lord may entrust to us from time to time is really the bottom line. And, and to be faithful to the mission, sometimes people are going to be upset and people aren't going to like, particularly in, in a pluralistic world, you know, where, you know, certain positions that you end up uh, taking uh, again, modeling love and charity and gracefulness, uh, you know, in, in your positions, uh, uh, people may not necessarily like, like that and may be angry about it. And, and that's okay. Yeah. I want to come back to some leadership principles later in the interview as we, as we start to get uh, toward a close. Um, I'd like to ask you to reflect on some of the external threats, uh, environmental factors that you see swirling around Christian higher education these days. I'd love to get your take on, uh, from all your years of experience, serving on boards, serving as president, senior administrative positions, uh, what are the three or four um, most important factors that um, senior administrators and boards need to be paying attention to? Well, there are several that come to my mind. One is what I would call internal disintegration. Uh, that is to say, we're internally, not not because of external pressures or whatever, you begin to lose uh, uh, the, 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 the anchor points that have centered you for, for many, many years. And you begin to cut cut the tether your anchors mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that is evidence is uh, I think Peter Greer is the one who wrote the book entitled mission drift right you know mission drift happens yep. and when you when you that's not a that's that's an internal choice that is a I mean you look at a lot of higher education institutions even places like Harvard or Columbia which have scripture verses even even the work that uh, Dan Hummel's been doing at University of Wisconsin on lifting out the history mm-hmm. of the University of Wisconsin, you know, there's there's been drift, you know. So and and those are internal choices that people make, and and how are we going to respond to the mm-hmm. external realities uh, that face us? So you know, uh, uh, so I, I I think there there are multiple kinds of internal internal uh, issues, you know, the issue of can we afford this? Can we can we afford Christian higher education? 
you know, the, the dilemma between access versus choice. Maybe I don't have the choice to go anywhere I think I'd like to go because I can't afford it. So I choose this option and I'm a commuter student here. You know, uh, you know, net tuition revenue is something every president uh, talks about on a regular basis of a Christian higher education institution. You know, when you're spending more money on financial aid than you're bringing in uh, through uh, tuition, you're, you're not going to have the resources to, to fund programs and pay faculty and staff and do the other things you want. Those are all internal decisions. Then there are the external ones. And when it comes to external, I see the word tsunami, <laughs> you know, uh, used a lot, the tsunami. And, uh, and there, most people are, are thinking of some of the huge cultural shifts uh, that were not in play 50 years ago in Christian higher education when there was a different, you know, a different mindset uh, in the culture, uh, be it the government, uh, accrediting agencies, or uh, all of the other uh, multiple players. So I think those, uh, you know, the internal threats, they're internal threats that I think we can do something about. Uh, the external threats, uh, you know, are are threats that we have to be alert to. I but but even in the in the in the process, I think we we need to do what we need to do to be faithful to the mission that God has called us to. Uh, uh, and and if if Christian higher education doesn't survive in its current format, I think there are a couple of other emerging options that I'm very bullish on and I'm very excited about as well. So and we have to keep in mind that Christian higher education is basically a Western world idea. We see more Christian colleges in the United States and Canada than we see in any other yeah. part of the world. And in, in many parts of the world, it's non-existent. I mean, you don't see very many Christian colleges in, in the United Kingdom yeah. uh, or in France or Germany or uh, lots of other places. It's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's unique to the U.S., the Western, the Western world. So that's why I think, unless we think that the church is gonna gonna go down the tubes if we don't have Christian higher education, it will not. It, because you look around the rest of the world, and there is not that kind of Christian higher education mindset, you know, that is there to support the church. Uh, so in, in many ways, we ought to be way ahead of the pack. Unfortunately, because of our our our, our Christian higher education focus, unfortunately, we're in many ways we're not. Well, then that leads me into my next question. Um, and and that is, you know, you're someone who has benefited personally from private, non-religious, and public flagship universities. Um, I'd love for you to reflect on what role these institutions have played in your life and what are a, a, what are a couple of their unique advantages, even in advancing um, dimensions of Christian education. And, and then I want to move into the Consortium of Christian Study Centers and talk a little bit about that. But first, if you'd reflect yeah. on your experience in secular, non-religious institutions and the role they play. They clearly had a formative role in your life. And um, I wonder what you see as some of the unique advantages that those institutions can offer and the organizations that support them. Well, thank you. I, you're right. I have I've spent more years in non-Christian education settings from as a student than I have spent in Christian uh, education settings as a student. You know, master's degree from Ball State, law degree from Temple University, 
a PhD from University of Michigan. I mean, all experiences that had profound impacts on me uh, in in multiple ways, and I think helped prepare uh, me to serve our Lord better in whatever field he mm-hmm. was going to lead. As, I, as I'm going through those experiences, I did not know what the end game was in terms of service and ministry and or vocational uh, calling. Just didn't know. Uh, but I had a great experience at, at Ball State. I had a great experience at Temple. It introduced me to, you know, uh, the, the, the more urban setting and more urban environment. It was a, an urban north central uh Philadelphia setting for Temple. Uh, and then, of course, the University of Michigan. I, I, I love that experience as well for my doctoral study. So, yeah, I, they, they have, they can, they have, they have, they give us more, in many ways, they give us more breadth and more depth than I can get at a Christian, at a, at a Christian university. There, there might be some exceptions, but but I, I I couldn't have gotten the quality of, of PhD studies that I got at Michigan anywhere else. I mean, the program I was involved in is still ranked number one in the United mm-hmm, States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was ranked number one when I went there, which is why uh, I went there. And 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 you know, it's 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 you know, I it, there are there are a few Christian law schools, not many. So if you if you really want to study in any of of the professional areas, for the most part, you are not going to choose a Christian college because the options are so limited. If I want to study architecture, there are only two or three Christian colleges or universities that I'm aware of that that offer architecture. So, right. so I think the kind of universities you're re- referring to, we're talking about, give us more breadth of opportunities and more depth. I can, I can even if if a, if a Christian college does offer a PhD in an area. Most of them don't offer research opportunities like I would get at a big university, yeah, yeah. you know, or yeah. to to be a, you know do a residency or go. And if you if you go into the sciences in terms of medicine, you're not going to find very many Christian universities that offer you know the, the STEM medical uh, uh, strengths of a, of, a, of a of a of a secular university. So so I, I think in in so many ways we we need to embrace. The role that those kinds of universities play, uh, uh, even as we recognize, on the other hand, the strengths, particularly at the undergraduate level, uh, that a, a Christian institution, if that's an available option, uh, can play in the life of a person as well. Yeah, and Gene, I I want to talk a little bit about the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. You're a newer um, convert to that movement. Um, I, I I think maybe. Th- Two or three, four years, I think. Um, you're you're helping to start a study center at University of Michigan. You also serve on the board of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. Opera House is a member um, institution of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. So, you're uh, a great member of, of the CCSC. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, certainly inside knowledge about that. But I'd love to hear you reflect on why you're bullish about this movement, uh, particularly for someone who's spent so many years in Christian higher education, what do you see as the possibility of, of Christian study centers um, taking root at, you know, large, public, private, um, non-religious, uh, but major universities across the country? What, what advantages, what possibilities do the study centers present? 
Well, let me, let me, that's a complicated question. I may want to divide it into a couple of, of areas. You know, uh, first of all, let me speak to what I see as uh, the future of Christian higher education, yeah. particularly in the West. You know, given the tsunamis that we talked about, some of the internal dysfunction that we uh, talked about as well, we don't know in 50 years or, you know, are we going to have Christian colleges? We, we really don't know. And if somebody, you know, uh, we probably will. I hope we will. Uh, but we don't know. So that is an option that I think will always be there. But I think there are two other options. One is a relatively new one that's developing. Uh, and it's basically referred to as the, uh, uh, the it's, 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 it's basically a movement of, 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 you know, just as we had the movement in the, in the country of going from home schools mm -hmm. or homeschooling, which 20 years ago, people would have kind of, are you kidding me? That, that'll never work. We know that has worked and dramatically. There's another movement in, in Christian higher education called the church college movement. And, and it's led by a, an Indian intellectual by the name of Visual Magawadi and a bunch of, of people. Their goal is to have the capability of developing and, and, and providing some kind of the college experience in a million churches within two decades. Wow. Uh, now think about that. And, and, and it, it deals with the affordability issue. Mm -hmm. it, it deals with the disconnect between the church and Christian higher education, which in many cases, unless you're a denominational institution, there is that disconnect. Mm -hmm. There are not a whole lot of non-denominational churches that are supporting at a vibrant level. So I, I think that, that, Third revolution idea uh, that Magawadi is is promoting. There's now a book available on Amazon that talks about it. The, again, the, the the church college model, and by extension, it builds on the homeschool uh, mm. uh, idea. Is, is a second option that I think we're going to see right. grow in in various parts of the world. Maybe not so quickly in the West, but in other parts of the world, I think it'll come. And then I think the third one is the is the one you raised with the consortium of Christian uh, study centers. Now, here, let me tell you, I am a recent convert uh, to this. I mean, it, it's it's been in the last few years, and I'm I'm saying, why why have I not heard about this? This is such an exciting opportunity. Now, let me explain let me explain this in a broader sense. If if, if you're a parent, if you're parents and you have kids, you probably you know, uh, COVID notwithstanding and the drop in, uh, in church attendance, notwithstanding as a result of COVID and a lot of other factors, you still are probably looking as parents for a church community uh, uh, to help you as parents to grow your children, you know, in their faith. It's not just something that you, your parents, as parents are doing alone. You've got this this larger church community. Okay, so those young people grow through high school and high school, there are places like Campus Life and Young Life and, and other groups. Uh, there's Catholic, the Catholic Church has a variety of, uh, of areas for people in their faith. The Lutheran Church has a really good school system, you know, um, and so, you know, but you're always looking for partners. And then when you send, uh, you know, your, your young people are looking for uh, for partners at the college level, uh, uh, 
you're, you think about Christian colleges, but we talked about the breadth and depth of what another campus offers or the affordability issue. The Christian college simply may not be an option for you. In fact, there are more Christian young people that are going to non-Christian colleges every year than attend Christian college. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the question has to be raised is what are we doing as a church to help support these enterprises? And so I, I think I think a, a, a Christian study center at its best, and 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 Rick Ostrander, uh, uh, who is the chair of our steering committee at the University of Michigan uh, Christian uh, Study Center, basically says it's it's the best of what a Christian college has to offer in the context or in the middle of a large secular campus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, we get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the but but. Here is where I think the Christian Study Center movement goes beyond uh, that, because it, it rather than than trying to build its own brand, you know, if you have a you know, InterVarsity does wonderful work, Campus uh, Crew does wonderful work. There's other, you know, the Newman Centers do wonderful work. The, the Consortium for Christian Study Centers liked. We'll work with all of that those those groups. We, we will bring you together. In fact, may open up our facilities, which is what you do at, at Upper House to all of these groups and let's, where can we get leverage? Where can we get synergy? I think that's unique. You know, some Christian study centers, their primary focus is on students and the student experience, uh, which it is primarily, I think, probably through some other Christian ministries. But the Christian study center goes beyond that. It goes to working with faculty and having faculty in their work with students. And it does, as you do at Upper House, have faith learning integration sessions where right. faculty, Christian faculty from the University of Wisconsin, or in our case, at Michigan, from the University of Michigan, will come and talk about the, the philosophical Christian dimensions for the young people on those campuses. And, and there you're talking about world-class scholars. You know, um, we can learn from that, yeah. uh, that model. I think we learn more about pluralism uh, in 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 the, in the uh, consortium for Christian Study Center uh, uh, type campus, where what's it like to function in a pluralistic world? For the most part, in many Christian uh, higher education settings, you're not in a you're not in a bubble, you know, per se, because you're not trapped and you're not. But you're in a community where you don't face the kinds of challenges. How do you do that? The Christian uh, consortium for Christian Study Centers allows that uh, to happen. But I think one of the other Big, big pluses of the, con- the consortium uh, for Christian Study Center movements is that consortium study center centers position themselves as partners with the university rather than seeing the university as an adversary. Yeah, you know uh, that changes the mindset. And 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 when we you can you know early in our conversation we talked about I think one of the marks that Jesus gave us about what's going to bring people's attention to to what God is at work doing is doing good and doing good works. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes because we've, you know, been so preoccupied, you know, with not wanting to make good works be our our means to salvation, we ignore the fact that good works are the validation to the world of our salvation and and we 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 miss huge opportunities. And, and Christian study centers can help the university in its task. And, and let's face it, universities are doing 
great work with their research in medicine and uh, and a whole host of other, uh, you know, their work on the environment and and, and so many other areas. And so uh, a, a CSC, a Christian Study Center, doesn't position itself as an adversary. It positions itself as an ally. Yeah. And that's really what we need to be doing, you know, as we mirror, uh, you know, the image of God in our lives, positioning ourselves. This is a world we didn't create. It's a world that God created, you know, with people having, uh, you know, the Imago Deo. Now, each of us have within us the image of God. I mean, so I, I just think the, 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 the Christian study movement, it represents a fabulous opportunity to address a part of the church that's here. Christian young people in a secular university setting uh, and their opportunity to grow and learn and, and have faith learning integration discussions with key faculty and staff and colleagues as they position themselves to be an ally. That to me is a win-win. Yeah. And, and again, we don't have to, we don't have to make it the enemy of Christian higher education. We need Christian higher education in the way in which I've, benefited from it as a student, the way I've, I've had the opportunity, I've had the opportunity to give back to it, you know, in a, in a couple of university presidencies, but that's not enough. If we, if we hope to have a, a, a more global influence and, and, and influence other areas, uh, reflecting the image of God in our lives, uh, uh, outside of the Christian higher education community. So, so, yeah, that's a long answer, and I apologize for the long answer, but, but I, I think that's one of the happening places right now where the church needs to wake up and see uh, how it can support better, not just Christian higher ed, but consortium uh, uh, CCSC Christian Study Centers, because I, th I think they're, they're going to play an increasingly, as the pressure comes on the outside, yeah. as that tsunami that we talked to, Christian Study Centers are going to become more important to doing the work of the church than they've ever they've ever been, and so I, I my my hope is that you know uh, as 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 you know from uh, our conversations, uh, John, as I've talked about this with our executive director, my hope is that in all of the major thought centers of of the United States that have flagship universities located within them, we will have Christian study centers active involved and engaged we're not there yet we only have maybe between 35 and 40 uh we ought to have 100 or, or more uh, and so uh working together uh, collaboratively to achieve those broader goals well you've given me three really good reasons uh to be hopeful for the future of, of christian education and and done it um in in ways that are very clear Gene, thank you very much for this conversation. I'm adding up the years uh, on my own, but I think you've served probably 50 years um, in higher education. Um, it's some, been a while. It's, it's, been a, it's been a while. And, 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 and then the surprise was the American Bible Study, which is a large nonprofit, you know, and that, you know, Lord used that to add some more arrows to the quiver, so to speak, in the, terms of the leadership side. The experiences are rich, and thank you for sharing them with us today. Uh, we are so grateful. With great joy. And we appreciate your time. Uh, again, we'll put um, details about Gene's writing in the show notes uh, uh, and have his full bio there. And uh, we thank you for listening. Um, 
And Gene, thank you for your service in so many um, sectors of, of the church. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, John, and thank you for your friendship. I appreciate that. Blessings. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW.